We sort of know intuitively that doing a better job managing may help to support people's lives in other ways. But the connection may be even stronger than you think. In this episode, Gallup's findings on the significant link between what managers do and how much people thrive. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 532. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us have such a heart to build and grow resilient and thriving teams. And one of the things that we owe it to ourselves as leaders to do is uh, really ground ourselves in what's happening in the research and what's going on in the world of helping us to do a better job at doing that for the people we have the privilege to influence. I'm so glad today to welcome back to the show one of the leading voices on the data and the research from Gallup. I'm so pleased to welcome Jim Harder back to the show. He is chief scientist for Gallup's workplace management and well-being practices. He has led more than a thousand studies of workplace effectiveness and is the best-selling co-author of It's the Manager, 12, The Elements of Great Managing, and Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. Jim has also published articles in many prominent business and academic journals, and he's the author with Jim Clifton of the new book, Well-Being at Work, How to Build Resilient and Thriving Teams. Jim, so glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again, Dave. Great to be with you and your audience. Well, thank you for the incredible work you've been doing and the entire body of work that Gallup has been doing over the decades. I shared with you earlier before we started talking that uh, when I read First Break All the Rules, I don't know how long it's been out now, 20, 25 years, it really changed my entire philosophy of how I thought about leadership and management. Um, and it's been, uh, Gallup's work has been such a wonderful touchstone for me over the years. And this new book, continues that in the research you've all been doing. And one of the messages that you shared with us last time when you were on was just the importance of career in our well-being. And I'm, I'm going to quote something you mentioned in this new book. One of the single biggest discoveries Gallup has ever made is this. What the whole world wants is a good job. People want a job that uses their God-given strengths every day with a manager who encourages their development. Stress and anxiety are most likely linked to my job or not having a job. My job and my manager are the two strongest links to net thriving. That's a really significant finding, isn't it? It is. And I think it's overlooked by a lot of people who, uh, you know, we have a tendency to separate work from life. And a lot of times the default is to keep those things separate when, in fact, our careers impact our social lives, they impact our finances, they impact our health, a lot of research on that. And they in, in, impact how we relate to our communities. And so uh, it is the foundation really for getting well-being right. And uh, for people in jobs, you know, regular jobs where they're either, sh either showing up to an office or they're working remote or th that's their career, of course. It's the first thing that we ask somebody when we see them, what do you do? And, you know, career kind of has tentacles that, that go to a lot of other areas of our lives. Even if we aren't working full time, our career is what we do. And we find that even pe when people reach retirement age, they, they still need something to do. And that keeps them going and keeps them flourishing. 
you talk extensively in this new book about Gallup Net Thriving. Could you tell me about what that is and and how some of the data has been collected for this? Yeah, so we've always looked um, at Gallup for questions that that gather the most information and do it in a, a comprehensive way, but also that are simple enough that anybody in the world can answer them. And years ago, we came across a question that uh, George Gallup and Hadley Cantrell, it was developed by Hadley Cantrell, who was a Princeton sociologist. He designed a question that George Gallup then put on a number of his polls. And it's a question where he asked people to imagine a ladder with zero at the bottom to 10 at the top, where 10 is the best possible life, zero is the worst possible life. And it asks you to, to put yourself on that ladder right now. And then there's a follow-up question that asks you to put yourself on that same ladder five years from now. And uh, everybody can answer that, those, that two-part question. And we found in our research that if you score seven or above in your present life and, and eight or above in the future, next five years, you're thriving. You have a, a ton of other life outcomes that are very positive. You have, have better days, better health, just a lot of other outcomes that are associated with that. And people who, who report four or, or below present, four or below future are in a state that we call suffering. And uh, everybody else is in a struggling state where they're, they're working on some significant issues in their life. And um, even those in a thriving state, they have uh, things they're working on. So we're all kind of in the same boat from that perspective. Everybody has something they're working on pretty much. And organizations, I think, can have a big impact on, on net thriving. We call it net thriving because it's a net of the, that two-part question. And we've, we've got measurement of that all over the world and have since 2005. We've had a global world poll going where we've captured data all over. And I think it would, it's a real advantage to have organizations thinking about how many of their employees are thriving because there, there's a lot we've found organizations can do to Im, impact that. Yeah. The, there's so much data in this book that by the way, there's no way we'll capture it all in this conversation, but it is really fascinating how much has come out of just those two questions. And one of the big things that's illuminated is five key elements of well-being. And you detail that quite extensively in the book. And the five are career, social, financial, physical, and community. And the interesting thing that you mention is that the ordering of that is significant, isn't it? And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the ordering. Yeah. And so um, people often ask, what should I work on first? And there is an order to the elements. Now, if someone is suffering in any of those elements, of course, that's the first thing to work on. If you have physical pain, you've got to get that fixed right away. If, you've, if you're uh, bankrupt, of course, you have to fix that in the financial area. If you're extremely lonely, you've got to fix that. If you live in an unsafe area um, where you fear for your life every day, that's something that comes as top priority. But all things being equal, career well-being is the most foundational. We talked about that. It, if you get that right, you've got a better chance of getting the other areas right. And it's followed closely by social well-being, which is having meaningful friendships in our lives. And uh, those two really set the stage for getting the other ones right, including financial well-being, physical well-being, and community well-being. We, if we have those those first two career and social, in fact, if if for organizations that are working on employee engagement inside their organization in a way that we would prescribe, you're already working on career and social well-being, and uh, you've got a good foundation in place if you've made some significant advancement 
in the employee engagement space. So th- those two are the first to get right. And the reason for that is that it creates a level of trust inside the organization where people don't second guess other areas where you're trying to help them with their well-being. They'll be more attentive to what you offer them inside the organization through your policies, programs, perks, benefits. And they'll also be more open to having conversations with, with the manager about, about their overall life. There, there won't be kind of a distrust where it feels awkward to talk about those things. So they really do set the stage for creating a net thriving culture um, over time. It, it really reinforces for me the both responsibility and opportunity that leaders have to influence well-being, not just in the workplace, but in every area of a person's life. And when I think about these five, I'm just sort of thinking about like even if we took off the leadership lens for just a moment, Jim, and just think about this from a like a human experience, I might even order them opposite. Like if I think about like, well, what's going to help me to really have to be thriving in life and well-being and like community would come up for me pretty early on that list and then physical mm-hmm. and financial. And I might not even think about career until later when I, if I just think about the word well-being. But it is interesting that the data really does show that that's not the case. Not that they're all important, as you mentioned, but mm-hmm. but career and social really do come first on that list. There's a lot we can do to really, if we're doing those well, that influence the other areas. It'll influence how you, how you view your finances. So Financial well-being is really about how you manage your money. Do you manage do you manage it well, and you direct it at a couple of outcomes. One is to reduce daily stress um, that comes from money management and and long-term security that you feel like you're going to have enough money in the future, and that's highly influenced by the people that we hang out with and uh, what we do with our money. If we use our money to buy some experiences, it lasts a long time. Those experiences kind of keep keep living on, and of course how we influence our finances also Im- impacted by how we view our careers. If we have engaging jobs where we look forward to coming to work every day, we view our finances very differently than if we don't. And people respond to money uh, very differently uh, depending on the quality of their, of their relationship with their job. And even physical well-being, when people are working together closely and they've got close colleagues, they can reinforce different positive behaviors around physical well-being whether it's uh, going for a walk together, having a meeting while you're walking, you know, when people get back and we, we open up more, that'll ha- be happening a lot more. Whether they get on a Zoom call with somebody that they work with and talk about what they're doing from an exercise standpoint and share some of those things or even dietary. There's a long ways you can go with social well-being and career well-being in any of these areas. Also, how we partner with others to affect our community and uh, share some common passions. The highest level of well-being comes when people actually in their community feel like they're involved in making a difference. And that's when you get people saying, you know, my, my life has exceeded my wildest expectations because they get feedback from that impact they're having on their community. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and so there's a lot of opportunity for us as managers to influence this well. The bad news is there's also, of course, opportunity for us to not do this well and there's a heading in the book that leapt out at me that says, time with a manager, the worst part of the day. Could you tell me about what's behind that heading and that finding? Managers have a huge influence on how we think about our jobs and experience our, our days. Um, we, we did a study um, years ago, and we, we cite this in the book where we actually looked at people. We had them 
respond to some questions throughout the day in the moments of their days and uh, captured their mood in the moment. And before the study, we measured their level of engagement. We know that managers impact about 70% of the variance in team engagement. So they have big, big impact. But the people that were more engaged at the outset of the study just had much better experiences during the day, a lot more energy, a lot more interest, lower stress levels. We even measured physiologically their cortisol levels through saliva samples and found that the cortisol levels were very different on, on days where they worked, not on days where they didn't work. So their sleep awakening cortisol levels, the stress hormone were significantly higher if they had jobs that they sort of dreaded or, or they were disengaged versus those where they're, they're engaged. So even physiologically, there's something going on there. But unfortunately, yeah, a lot of people dread time with their manager because they might come to work and just be told what to do, not have too much autonomy, be, be critiqued more often than praised. It's kind of interesting to me, uh, the, the amount of positive to negative reinforcement that we need, Dave, because you might think that, well, we, got, we need to at least balance it, right? But people who are disengaged report about as much positive as negative reinforcement. The people who are engaged see, uh, report four times the amount of positive feedback as negative feedback. So you can still have the negative feedback that well, I think of as positive critique, I guess, but as long as it's strengths-based and you know something about the person and their strengths. So managers, it, it doesn't have to be that way just because most people dread time with their manager. It definitely doesn't have to be that way. And we've seen um, a lot of people shift from a mentality of boss to coach lately where they, they think of themselves more like a coach. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, that's one of the invitations and you make coming out of the book is to begin to make that transition, if you haven't already, from moving from being boss, being the boss to being more coach-like. And, mm -hmm. and, and we'll, um, we'll probably get into that a bit more. Um, before we talk about some of the findings and the recommendations coming out of this, one of the other things that I think is really significant that you mentioned, too, is that a lot of employers have tended to limit the focus on quote-unquote wellness to talking about eating healthy and exercise rather than what you say is what matters more, which is career well-being more holistically. Could you share a bit more about that distinction? Well, I think uh, sometimes organizations lead with the policies, programs, and perks. And while those are important, they're all interpreted and used in the context of what people experience at work, even, even whether they know that they exist, but also the extent to which they will. Um, so, you know, a policy, for instance, like if we put a policy around hours worked, how engaged you are in your work has multiple times more impact on your well-being than the number of hours you work, even though everybody's got a point where it's probably too much, right? We see as it, hours work goes up stress can increase unless you have a job where you have some autonomy and you, you feel like you're really making a difference and can do what you do best. Same thing with vacation time. How engaged you are in your work has multiple times more impact on your well-being than the number of weeks of vacation you have. Vacation time, don't get me wrong, vacation time is very important for a lot of reasons. But if we lead with the policy we get off mark. If, if a culture could be built on policies, programs, and perks, not too many companies would have culture problems. Mm -hmm. But most organizations, most leaders know inherently that there, there are some culture problems because when they're trying to get things done, they don't get done as quickly as they need, need them to, or people just lose sight of the goals or aren't 
aren't really updated on changes in goals and priorities. So the man- managers play a huge role in that because not only how they communicate with their team, but how they communicate with other managers is really important. And managers themselves have to be engaged. And unfortunately, we see on average managers report higher stress and burnout than the people that they manage. So there's there's something mm-hmm. systemic there we need to think about from a well-being standpoint. Gallup has been leading the conversation for several decades on engagement now. And uh, thinking about what you just said on policies are great, but really it's not enough. When you see examples of leaders and organizations that get beyond just the policy and in practice are actually doing a better job at, at looking at this holistically, what do you find that they're doing differently in practice, the, the conversations that managers are having that makes a difference? It uh, really starts, Dave, with uh, clarity around the organization's purpose and uh, the culture that they want to build. And so they have to be very clear on, on why. Let's, let's say that a leader wants to have a, a net thriving culture or a high well-being culture. That's got to be explicit in their communication. It's got to be explicit in their strategy. And people need to know why. And the reasons why I would say right now to have a high well-being culture are one, um, we're we're seeing a lot of of mental health issues in the workplace right now. We've seen increases in stress, worry, sadness, and anger globally among workforces since 2009, particularly this past year. So that's one. People can't be there, can't bring their whole selves to work if if they're if they've got things that are dragging them down, and if they're burnt out, they're not going to perform as well. the The other is if you want to attract stars in the future. You really need to be thinking about the kind of culture, the authentic culture you have inside your organization, because what happens inside organizations goes outside much more quickly than it used to with social media, et cetera. And so I think leaders really need to have a strategy for how they're going to change that culture, because what comes out of the CEO's office is what works best. It's got to be owned there. And then it's really important. We've seen for, for leaders to equip their managers to include well-being and performance management conversations and ongoing conversations that they're having. But to do that, th- there are some criteria that, that make it work around you know, making sure that you know the strengths of each person uh, so that you don't have those awkward conversations. You've got a common language you're talking and, and make sure that you're, you're taking each manager on a journey that we just talked about from boss to coach. So, And it is a journey. It's not like a one-time event. It's You've got to be thinking about it continuously and how base knowledge then is built on through experiences and collaboration with with other managers. I've also seen organizations uh, build inside their organization coaches who become experts and share best practices, and they, they become experts on one or more of those five elements, and they become resources also even beyond the managers inside. And then the other thing, this seems like a lot, but it isn't it, it isn't as much as it sounds like, but You've got to, I think, go through and audit the practices and policies you have in place, like we talked about before, and make sure that all of them work in the, in the direction of uh, the kind of culture you're trying to build. Some current policies might be working against that. Some, some may, may not, but make sure that they all reinforce. And I'm talking about how people get recognized to events, developmental opportunities, how things are communicated, uh, rules and guidelines that are in place. Those can all be pretty quickly um, audited just to make sure that they're not working against your intentions in terms of your culture overall. So those are some kind of some things we've thought about and, and seen inside organizations, Dave, that I think are really important kind of foundational pieces. Yeah, indeed. And there's a number of invitations and findings that 
come out of the research that are really fascinating to me. And you mentioned a few of them of the focus on strengths and uh, becoming more coach-like. And some of those we've we've talked about extensively on the show in the past. And, and by the way, I'll link mm-hmm. to a few of those conversations afterwards here. Others we have not talked about as much. And one of them is what you just said of making well-being a part of career development conversations. And I think that my sense is the world is changing a bit on this. Like We are getting better as a society, uh, at least here in North America, of moving past this sort of framework I think a lot of us have had for years of thinking about work and life as two separate things. And we're starting to see, especially in the last year, like so much more integration, which is generally a good thing, I think. And yet, you said something a moment ago, which also is, I think, significant, is that can be kind of awkward sometimes, too, especially for leaders and organizations have, that have not bridged that gap before. When you make an invitation like helping well-being to become a part of career conversations, what do you find that helps a manager who, who's maybe not done much of that before to start to take a step to do that a little bit better? Yeah, that's a good question. We've included, actually, in, in the back of the book, a manager guide that gives you some starting point questions you can ask on each of the elements with people. But I think you really can't, it's, it's hard to replace. Uh, so being a part of being a coach is you're going to have a lot more ongoing conversations with people so you can get ahead of issues before they, before they manifest themselves into large issues and change goals when you need to change goals so people aren't kind of behind or there's not a communication gap between what the organization needs and what the organization is doing because organizations are changing quite a bit right now. So that that's important, having those ongoing conversations, but they can seem awkward to people, as you said, if you just start doing them now and you've never done them before. So I found a real important starting point is to help people know why you're going to have more frequent conversations, that uh, maybe even be really transparent with them about the reason why you're changing and that you should have been doing it before, you know, and that you've, you've had some learning that's, that's occurred. I found it also useful. You mentioned strengths that if a manager knows their own strengths and measures it and has that with their employee, it it starts a different conversation, starts to build trust because I know something about you I didn't know before. And even a manager being transparent about their own strengths can help explain, you know, what they've learned and how they're going to approach things differently in the future. So I think that that kind of new transparency can help a lot in moving things in a different direction than maybe a manager's done it before. But to Strengths, I know I've mentioned strengths a lot, but that can really help change the conversation and start to build some trust where you know something about someone you didn't know before and you've got a language that kind of opens the door for new kinds of conversations. Yeah, Strengths Finder also is included in the book. And so for those who have not taken the Strengths Finder assessment before, you know, it's such a wonderful tool to start with. And uh, and I love your invitation to, to start there first. And the other thing you said a moment ago was frequency. And that's a really uh, interesting finding as well, is how much feedback and consistent feedback makes uh, a big difference. And you say in the book, giving each employee meaningful feedback once a week is a basic requirement of a fully skilled manager. What is the data showing around frequency of feedback? Well, that is the minimum required is, is, is once per week. And of course, it's going to depend on the individual, their job, and what some of their strengths are and their preferences. So just having that conversation with somebody about how often and what types of feedback 
that you have is really important. The key word in that sentence you just read is meaningful, meaningful feedback. So frequency of feedback is important, but having meaningful feedback is even more important. And, and how do you get underneath that? Well, meaningful really means you know something about their, you know, a lot about their job, you know, the, the kinds of things that they're working on, you know, something about their strengths so that you know how they, how they do things. And in this current situation that we've been in over the last year plus, uh, knowing something about their their life overall and the situation that they're in, at least as much as they're willing to to share on that, it can help you contextualize how they do work, when they can do work, and any kind of distractions that might be getting in the way, so that you can adjust. So I th- I think meaningful means you know you know the person really well, and not everybody likes to be recognized the same way. The the other thing I think that uh, managers and employees need to recognize is that. Certainly, the manager sets the tone for feedback and can initiate a lot of it, but it, it should go both ways. It should the the, man, the employee should ask for it too, and so uh, while the manager needs to make sure it happens, it's kind of a, I think it's a new job requirement. the The employee can do a lot with regard to feedback as well. Not only give the manager some feedback, but ask ask the manager for feedback at the right time. There's we found different categories of ongoing conversations that are useful to people. There are quick connects where it's just kind of making sure that the employee knows you're open to, to talk with them about whatever issues are popping up. It could just be a five or 10 minute check. We call it a quick connect. There's also a check-in that you might schedule 30 minute intervals to just go through goals that people have adjust goals when needed. Are there anything's getting in the way of what you're trying to get done that I can help with? Recognizing something that you've seen them do well. And then there are developmental conversations also that can happen that can change people's careers where the manager might notice something the individual did, they may not, not even be aware that that was a strength of theirs and that they do it so much better than other people. Or again, it might be a, a real high trust uh, critique kind of conversation where the person changes their course and learns something that they didn't, didn't know about themselves before. So feedback can, can come in a lot of different forms, but those are some of them that we've seen that have been really effective and that, that word meaningful is, is really important. Yeah, indeed. Uh- There's a fascinating chart in the book about the relationship between engagement and frequency of feedback from a manager. And as we'd all expect from what you just said, the more frequent the feedback and meaningful feedback, the more engagement. The part about the chart, though, that's really interesting to me is you all have measured that feedback and the, the data from people who work hardly at all remotely and people who work remotely most of the time and then everything Mm -hmm. in between. And what's really interesting is that the folks who tend to work remotely more, when they get less feedback, they tend to have lower engagement levels than people who are in the, the traditional workplace. But the opposite is also true, that if you work remotely more and you get more frequent feedback, the engagement levels are actually higher than they are in the traditional workplace. And I guess what I'm taking away, maybe I'm oversimplifying, you tell me, Jim, that feedback makes an even bigger difference if it's in the virtual environment. I think so. And I think it's because you know people may not expect as much of it, even though they need it. So getting it in a virtual environment is really important. So you combine the autonomy you have in a virtual environment with getting good, meaningful feedback from your manager on a regular basis. It's uh, very powerful. We, see, we actually see the highest engagement and even did pre-pandemic for people who are in more of a kind of a hybrid environment. 
which I think a lot of organizations are moving to in the future, or at least attempting to, it's going to be complex. But in a hybrid environment, you kind of do have that combination of autonomy and still connection to some coworkers in the office when you're in there. And I think that's why you see a little bit higher engagement there. But you, you know, you can get to the top of our database on engagement in any of those scenarios, whether you're working on site, um, hybrid, or or full time remote. It's just a matter of thinking about human nature and how we leverage human nature and, and do it in, in different ways depending on where we're located. One of the other key insights you have for managers is the invitation to really get clear on expectations, and you mention that the research shows that one in two employees know what's expected of them at work when you look at the global population, which means, of course, that half don't know what's really expected of them at work. What's significant about that finding? I think that the reason the finding exists is that um, a lot of managers think by default their, their job is mainly to delegate. And just delegating doesn't necessarily get you clear expectations because Clear expectations, uh, one, one of the simplest ways, kind of low-hanging fruit to get high expectations or really clear expectations is to include the individual in goal setting. Those ongoing conversations are important too because you've got to know what the individual is doing on a regular basis to, to, to know whether um, goals need to be adjusted or not. But just involving someone in their own goals is a huge step forward and it's often overlooked. We also have clear expectations when we know how our work relates to the people around us in their work. So if I do X, does the other person do Y, you know, or, or what, what's the relationship between what I do and what my coworkers do? We call that tacit knowledge that kind of builds up over time. And that's why expectations can become clear as, as people work together for longer periods of time. So there, it's, it's a more complex topic than many people may think, because it, it's, it's not just telling people what to do. It's, helping them really get involved in how, how their goals and, and their work relates to the organization's goals and, and how it relates to their coworkers' work. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting what you said of thinking about delegation that a lot of us do. Even if we don't do that as well as we'd like to, we do think about that as a core skill set of management. And yet, we don't necessarily think about setting clear expectations. And it, it is interesting as I reflect on recent conversations I've had with folks in our community and our academy, uh, when situations arise where there's performance standards that aren't met, how often there is an element of whether expectations were clear. And the data here show that that also really ties to a person's feeling about well-being in the workplace. It's, it's, it's really incredible. I, I, there's one other invitation you make that I, I also wanted to ask you about, and I, I don't think we've really ever talked about this on the show, is open conversations about pay philosophies. And you highlight this as, as a really important area for well-being. What is it about conversations about pay and compensation that relates to well-being? Oh, pe- people um, will have a perception about pay because it's something tangible, whether they have a correct you know, perception or not. They will formulate a perception about their pay and how it relates to other people's pay. So I think the more open managers can be with individuals about how pay levels are determined, how they relate to the market, how they, how people can progress in the organization and, and earn more money. Just to have those kind of candid conversations, I think it's important to close the gap between perception and reality. 
So I think pay is a topic that is going to spark emotion because it's a tangible number. I'm being judged by based on who I am, based on a number, right? And so the more we can make those conversations open, the better. This particular point might be colored a bit by my own experience in transparency. Uh, I, I had a position years ago with an organization where, in retrospect, as I look back now, I was paid fairly, as were others in the organization. But the person leading the organization at that time had a really difficult time having clear and authentic conversations about compensation. And it was very much under the rug that was never talked about. And I think that that's probably true in a lot of places. And it caused so much um, stress for me and for others in the organization. And I look back and I realize like how much communication would have really changed. And the line I pulled out when I was reading the book was this one. You write, it's better to pay at market value and have effective pay conversations than to pay above market, but fail to align on those conversations. And I thought, like, how true that would have been for me in that situation years ago. And it's just a wonderful reminder for all of us to be a little bit more transparent and more intentional about having some of that dialogue within our organizations, isn't it? It is, because, uh, again, perception doesn't always match reality. And so the more that we can become aligned on how you get to where you're at and what the basis is of, and I think it not only goes for pay, but also goes for advancement inside organizations. Yeah. I think that's a big, big gap that needs to be closed is how people can advance to senior management and some stories about how people have gotten there or how they can, how they can advance to whatever level it is that they, they want to get to in the organization. It might be a lateral move. It could be growth within your current job and status within your current job. So, you know, both pay and what job we have in the organization are status-related variables, and we need transparency about how people can get to where they want to be in the organization and how other people have done that in the past. It kind of, it kind of removes some of the mystique around, was this just due to politics or not, you know, which you know, is an important performance management area as well. There's so much we're not mentioning in the book, and my invitation for everyone is I think that this book in particular is just a wonderful place from a credibility standpoint to enter into conversations. I know so many of you, like me, really think a lot about the heart and the care behind coaching and leadership and taking care of folks well, and sometimes we tend to miss the numbers and the data, or we don't lead with that. And in so many organizations, that's an important part of, our, of the conversation. The book that Gallup has, has written here, Jim, is just so helpful on providing the data that really supports so many of the practices that I know so many of us care about and want to align to. And, and it's also a quick read. It's, it took me an hour or two to read through the book. I think it'd be a wonderful compliment for every leader's bookshelf to help to continue to support your work. So I'd, I'd certainly encourage everyone to pick it up and to dive in on some of the data we didn't get to in this conversation. Jim Harder is the author of Gallup's new book, Wellbeing at Work, How to Build Resilient and Thriving Teams. Jim, thank you so much for your work. Thanks for having me, Dave, and for all the, the use that you've gotten out of it.
So many of us enter our careers with the heart and the desire to make the world a better place. And we do it in so many ways. We volunteer our time, we give to charity, we support our friends and families in so many places in their lives. And all of those are so critically important. And then we miss what's right in front of us, the opportunity to help people thrive in so many ways as a manager. I hope that this conversation is motivating you, like me, to want to do better in some of these key areas, several related episodes that will support you in getting better at some of the findings from Gallup's work. Uh, One of them is episode 237. These coaching questions get results with my guest on that episode, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael is the author of the best-selling book, The Coaching Habit. If you're looking for a single book, a starting point that will help you to move, that make that shift, as Jim talked about from being the boss to being more coach-like, The Coaching Habit is a wonderful book to start with. In episode 237, we talk about some of the key questions that come out of that book and one of some of the best tools and skills we can use as managers to become more coach-like. Also mentioned in Gallup's work is the challenge that abusive and abrasive leaders and managers bring to organizations and how much that can affect the ability for people to thrive. Episode 290 is a starting point for what to do if you find yourself in that, organiz- in, in that place in your organization where perhaps there is someone who's a bit abrasive that you do need to address. How to manage abrasive leaders was the topic of episode 290. My guest on that episode was Sharon Bar-David. She's an expert in working with difficult situations and difficult personalities. A wonderful starting point for you and an encouragement to you if you find yourself in a place where you're leading someone that may be that kind of a leader. Also recommended episode 293, How Teams Use Strengths Finder Results with Lisa Cummings. Lisa, one of the top experts on helping organizations and managers make the most out of StrengthsFinder. Of course, so much of StrengthsFinder tied to Gallup's work. Gallup publishes uh, the StrengthsFinder assessment, of course. If you are looking for ways that you can bring StrengthsFinder into your organization and to go beyond just doing the assessment, but to actually bringing it into daily actions, into conversations, into career conversations, as Jim talked about today, episode 293 would be a great starting point for you. Uh, Speaking of great career conversations, you heard the invitation to have well-being become more a part of those conversations. A wonderful framework for how to do that is on episode 370, Three Steps to Great Career Conversations. Russ Laraway is an expert at doing that. He's detailed a really solid three-step process for how to have those conversations better. It is something most of us never receive training on how to do well, and also how to do it in the context of the whole person, not just what we're doing today in the workplace. Episode 370 is the starting place for that. And then finally, the last time Jim was on, we talked about the changing nature of work. That was the title of episode 409, Gallup's findings on the changing nature of work, a wonderful complement to this conversation as well. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you'll go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership, it's going to give you the opportunity to search the entire library for the last 10 years 
by topic. And one of those topic areas is employee engagement. We've had many conversations over the years on that topic specifically. Lots there within the library. Plus, all of the free audio courses that I've aired over the years that are there for you to follow through with detailed notes. My entire library of articles and resources, the member cast, and then, of course, access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday. You'll be receiving that this Wednesday with links to everything I've uh, mentioned with Jim and all of the resources and, of course, all the related episodes that comes to you every week. Coachingforleaders.com is where you to go to set up your free membership. And we'll be back with you next Monday for our next conversation. Have a great week, everyone. Take care.